Before we get into the Word, I, I would like for us to pray. But as uh, you know, it's Resurrection Sunday. This is the big day that makes Christianity what it is without Jesus rising from the dead. We will be, as Paul said, our faith would be in vain. Everything we believe would be in vain. But because Jesus rose from the dead, He showed Himself to many at one stage. He showed Himself to 500. We have many witnesses that were alive at the time that they were used as witnesses. That's important to know. When Paul claimed that there were all these witnesses, most of them were still alive. And that is that stands up in court today, even still. So let's pray as we get into what the Word, what God has for us today. Father, thank You for Your Word. Your Word is Your will. Jesus, You are the Word made flesh. When we submit to Your Word, we are submitting to You. When we elevate Your Word, we are elevating You. When we celebrate Your Word, we are celebrating You. Today, Father God, I thank You that Your Word will take root in our hearts in a greater way than before. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to speak to you about the greatest announcement ever made. The greatest announcement ever made. And so today on Resurrection Sunday, I want to share with you the gospel in the clearest, most concise way I can find to do so. Now, if you Google it, YouTube, what is the gospel? You go through all the different favorite speakers that you may have or teachers you may have. Um, the gospel isn't necessarily something that you can say, well, you know what? Ray Comfort has it down. From top to bottom, <laughs> because really, broadly speaking, and I love Ray Comfort's way of, of, of sharing the gospel, but broadly speaking, the gospel is all the way from Genesis 1 verse 1 through to the end of Revelation. The Word of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But more narrowly speaking, the gospel has to do with what we celebrated this morning, the atonement made for you and I. But I'd like to start off by articulating the end goal of the gospel. It has an end goal. And ladies and gentlemen, family, the end goal of the gospel is not necessarily your forgiveness. Your forgiveness is only a means to that end. The end goal of the gospel isn't your justification or you being made right with God. You being made right with God is only a means unto a specific end goal. The, the end goal of the gospel isn't giving you a second chance in life. Most often you'll hear that preached throughout evangelicalism that, you know, Jesus died so you can have a second chance in life. That's not the end goal of the gospel. Many people have lived a much more productive and fruitful life and would have to because they've become a Christian, because they have been atoned for, and they've been redeemed, and they've been forgiven. But that wasn't the end goal of the gospel. The end goal of the gospel, folks, is not the fact that you get to one day run around in a healthy body on golden streets in heaven. That's not the end goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The end goal of the gospel is to bring you back to God, into fellowship with God. The end goal of the gospel is your reconciliation with the Father, your Creator. In 1 Peter 3 verse 18, it says that. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Unto what end? To bring you to God. The Bible says, Jesus speaking, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So there we have a road, a way, and we have a destination. Jesus is the way. He says, I am that way. I am the truth and life. No one ends up in the arms of the Father or in the presence of God until they go this way. So in other words, Jesus is the way, but the end goal of Jesus is what? You've been reconciled with the Father. Just as it states right here in 1 Peter 3, 18, For Christ also suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. End goal. So, to apply the gospel, believe and receive eternal life, and then to ignore God for the rest of your earthly life is not the end goal of the gospel. As a matter of fact, the end goal of the gospel is to bring you into relationship into the relationship with God that Adam and Eve had before they fell into sin. Jesus came to restore you. Think about this. Adam and Eve did not fall out of heaven to earth. Lucifer did. Adam and Eve fell out of relationship with the Father. Jesus came to restore what was broken, the relationship with the Father. So Jesus didn't come necessarily to take you back out of earth and put you back into heaven. He's not restoring you that way. He's restoring you relationally with the Father. The end goal of the gospel is relationship with the Father on a daily basis. Too many people look towards the gospel as a means to get out of hell. No, the gospel is a means to get into relationship with the Father. To be able to talk with Him, walk with Him, and be in His presence like Adam and Eve were before the fall. Are you all with me this morning? All right. The Apostle John echoed this exact same goal in John 17, 3. It says, and this is eternal life. What is eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God. So we can see there's a very clear understanding that the end goal of the gospel is you being in the presence of God today. No longer do you have to hide from God. No longer are you an enemy of God. No longer is He an enemy of yours with His wrath abiding upon you. Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God no longer condemns them. Why? Because all of God's wrath against your sin fell on Christ, and you are now forgiven and reconciled with God the Father. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, translated directly, it's the good news. It's the good news. That's the gospel. But if you look word for word, how that is translated is actually the good announcement, because news is an announcement, right? But it's the good announcement. That's the gospel. So today we want to talk about what this announcement is. 
Because if, uh, if we can discover what this great announcement is, we know what the gospel is. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power of God to save anybody. So when they hear the gospel, it is God's power that can convert them, birth them anew, and save them. To understand this good news, we first have to understand the bad news. Right? A <laughs> hundred dollars never looked so good just after you get a fine. When you get pulled over, you get a hundred dollar fine. You arrive at a party and somebody gives you $100 for your birthday. It's like, wow, this looks great. <laughs> Good news is great news when you know what the bad news is, right? So we first have to talk about what is the bad news. The bad news is that God is a holy God and that we are a sinful people. Therefore, we have become relationally incompatible with God. God is perfect. And we are far from it. Therefore, we have become incompatible. We speak two different languages. We don't understand Him. We can't hear Him. We can't see Him. We can't respond to Him. As a matter of fact, we see Him as enemy. God is righteous. We are unrighteous. Light and darkness. When He shows up, we're destroyed. So I know man can see God. So let me lay, lay this bad news out in two ways. First, we're going to ask who is God, and then we're going to ask who's man. And we'll answer those questions. So first, who is God? Well, many titles to God. First, we see that He is the uncreated creator of all things. He stands outside of creation. He's not subject to creation. He is Father, but He's also supreme judge. All these titles are true about God. The important thing to understand about this title of judge is that he is a good God, he is a faithful father, but he is a just judge. He is a good God, he is a, he is a great creator, he's a faithful father, but he is a just judge. And that ought to scare every one of us, especially the person who says, but God knows my heart. That's the problem. He's a just judge. And no matter how cute you are, he's a just judge because he knows your heart. What makes God a good judge? The fact that he's judge, just. Somebody goes, well, God is so good, he'll only show mercy. Well, that's not really the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is... The doctrine of simplicity is that all things are equally true about Him. Not One do not override the other, but He is. He doesn't show mercy. He is merciful. He is the source of what we know as mercy. He doesn't give justice. He, he is just. He doesn't act in goodness towards somebody. He is good. He is all of that. And every one of these attributes validates the other. So in other words, you might say, well, he's not just because he's love. No, no, no. His love is just. And his justice is love. They're both the same thing. If you look at the cross and you see a bloody Christ hanging on the cross, that's justice. Why? Because he loves you. 
His justice is love. His love is just. It's like a young boy walking into his house after school. And as he walks in there, he sees his family have been slaughtered. Blood everywhere. They catch the murderer. And the murderer is brought to trial. And this murderer steps up front before the judge. And this young boy that saw his whole entire family slaughtered by the hands of this murderer, sitting in the back of the court, waiting to see what this judge is going to say. As the murderer walks to the stand, the judge looks up and the judge says this, Aren't you lucky? Today is my birthday. And, and I'm just in such a good mood. I'm going to tell you, you've been a very naughty boy. But you know what? I'm going to just show mercy today. You're free. Don't ever do that again, okay? Don't do that again. And the murderer walks out free. While this young boy who saw his family slaughtered is standing in the back. When a judge does something like that, it infuriates everyone, doesn't it? Why? Because of the injustice done to the boy. Not just over the fact his family got slaughtered, but that the criminal wasn't brought to justice. You see, God is so good. As a judge, he's so just, he's so good, he doesn't take bribes under the table. He doesn't judge subjectively based on how he feels, whether it be his honeymoon or his birthday. He doesn't, it's not a subjective thing to God. God is just. All weights have to be balanced equally. Every crime has to be paid in full. Everyone. That is why our God is so just that every single sin, every single sin will be paid for in Christ or in hell forever. Where would you like your sins to be paid? In Christ. Because we stand before a just judge. He is good. He doesn't take bribes. He's not subjective. He doesn't have friends that, he pays, that, 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 pay, that pays him off. No, no, no. He's a just judge, which makes him good. That's why God is good. And I'm amazed that people sometimes, you know, they, they come, they, they're living in sin, and they go like, well, you know, God is good. God is good. God's good. Well, that's the problem. He is good, and that's why you're going to be paying for those sins. Somebody's paying for them, Right? And it's not true that, well, Jesus paid for them 2,000 years ago so I can keep accumulating them without conscience. That's not how it works. The proof that you have been justified is the fact that you are being sanctified. Put it in these terms. The proof that you got saved is that you are becoming more and more like Him every day. Your sins burn you. You can't sleep. <laughs> you wake up with sweats because you know, God, I don't want to sin. I hate to sin. Paul said, in Romans chapter 7, it bothered him. 
if your sins don't bother you, if you don't, if you are not fighting your sins today, but you are pursuing them willingly and unrepentantly, that's a concerning sign because that shows that regeneration didn't really take place, right? So the only proof I have that I am saved is the fruits of my life. That justification or sanctification is happening in my life, which proves that I have been justified. And therefore, I have, if I have fruits of justification, in other words, if I'm being sanctified daily and I'm wrestling my I'm not saying I'm sinless. I'm just wrestling my sins. I hate them after the fact, after I've done them, I hate them. That's the only proof I have that I will one day be glorified. So sanctification proves that you've been justified, and it proves that you will be glorified. Sanctification is a wonderful thing. Stop telling people, like, don't, don't feel guilty. Don't feel guilty. No, <laughs> you should feel guilty. <laughs> Not for what you have been forgiven for, but for those things you are still dealing with. So, we see that he's a good judge. He's a just judge. But there's one more thing that's very important. Not only is he, a, is he a perfect creator, a faithful father, but a just judge, but he's also a perfectly holy God. What does it mean that he's perfectly holy? There's no shadow in him. He's just light. He's light. And all sin, darkness, when a light is put on, the darkness that existed in front of that light disappears, is expelled, is destroyed. That's why we cannot stand before God without also dying. He's a perfectly holy God, and we are not. That's why we are no longer relationally compatible with God. God is so perfectly holy, like that light has to destroy the darkness in front of it, so God the perfect judge must condemn all sin and sinners in front of him. He has to do it in order to remain perfectly holy. If he did not, if he started playing with sin, if he started just winking at sin, if he started taking deals under the table in order to not judge sin, he would no longer be perfectly holy. So the problem is, how does this perfectly holy God forgive us without first killing us? How does He forgive us and still remain just and still remain holy? How does this judge look at that criminal and say, okay, you know what? You're forgiven without that judge being unjust. How does He do this? Well, He allows that sin to be paid elsewhere, which is on the cross. That sin is not paid on the cross. Yours is paid for. That's why he can legally declare you forgiven. He remains just, and you become forgiven in the process. So we talked about who God is, but who is man? Man is a fallen creature. This is the one thing you never hear anybody talk about. Man is actually fallen. I just saw an article this week. Somebody from the New York Times wrote, it's time for us to give up God. Why? Because, come on, God, why haven't you put an end to this war between Russia 
and the Ukraine. I mean, really, could there be a God that's good that allows all of that? Well, this guy, of course, as short-sighted as he is and as blind as he is in his sin, doesn't realize that man has actually fallen. And if you look throughout the history of man, man is so fallen, so corrupt, so evil. Consider all the evil that man has done to other men throughout ages. That's because of the fall that took place in the garden. You see, what did man fall from? Relationship with God. In what way has man fallen? He has fallen in the sense that his mind, his desire, and his will has become touched by sin and now is bent away from God. Just like Adam and Eve, when they sinned and God walked into the garden, they hid from Him. They tried to get away from Him. They saw Him as their enemy now. In the same way, fallen man, now because sin has touched his mind, it has touched his desire, it has touched his will, he no, lo no lo longer thinks of God the same way. He doesn't want God anymore, and he desires his own way. Because his mind, his will, and his desire has been touched by sin. So he's bent away from God, bent towards his own way, his own sinful way. Somebody might say, well, I know many sinners like Charlie Manson, Charles Manson, and how about Hitler, and so they stack up all these really bad people, and then they go and stand next to them. They're like, see, I'm a saint. Because <laughs> they compare themselves by themselves, with themselves, and they think they're okay. If you had to go walk around downtown and you ask anybody, why would God let you into heaven? They would say, what? Because I'm a good person. What makes you think you're a good person? Well, I'm not like my drunk uncle. I'm not like Charles Manson, never, never killed anybody, never shut up a school, nothing like Hitler. I'm good. But because man compares themselves with man, they justify themselves with God. But it's because they don't know how holy God is, and they don't compare themselves with God, they compare themselves with man. But if they had to compare themselves with God, they will see how disqualified they are relationally and in every way, morally, to be in God's presence. Because God is a just judge, and you don't want to be in His presence as with all the guilt that you have. His standards are so high, you couldn't qualify with Him. Somebody might say, well, I know so many other sinners, and I stack them up, and I'm standing next to them, and I'm looking pretty good. So I don't think I'm a sinner. The world do not see themselves as sinners. They see themselves as what? Victims of other people's sins. Rich people. Their fault that I only have two cars and a four-bedroom house. It's their fault that I only have as little as I do. <laughs> you know, well, uh, wealth is relative, isn't it? We should go travel a little bit more. So we can see what poverty looks like. Poverty is relative. So somebody says, well, I'm not really that sinful. I'm not a sinner, so I shouldn't be judged. Well, let's look at God's standards, and I love how Ray Comfort puts it out. I'll ask you the question. Be honest. Have you ever told a lie? Anybody? Any told a lie? So by your own admission, you're a liar, right? <laughs> okay. Anybody ever stolen anything here? Paperclip, something? 
like a sticky note from school, by your own admission, you're a thief, a lying thief, that's who you are. Any of you use the name of the Lord in vain? You're like, I've never said, oh my God, I've never said any of that. Oh, you know, but what you have done is, you've said, well, God told me to do something. Well, didn't you just use God's name? To go and do what you said God told you to do? Well, God told me to buy that nice car. <laughs> How many of you have ever used God's name? Yep, mm -hmm. every one of us. How many of you are lying right now? All right. We're stacking up these sins as we go. <laughs> have you ever lost it off to somebody else in your heart, which Jesus said is equal to the sin of adultery? Well, of course. So by your own admission, you are therefore a lying thief with an adulterous heart that blasphemes God. Okay, so how, how are we faring before a perfectly holy God? How are we faring in front of that perfectly just judge of the universe? Not good. So what I am saying is, there isn't a person, and, and it, people really bash Christianity for that. Nobody is claiming when they stand on the pulpit or when they're ministering to somebody else, they're not claiming that they're perfect. They are saying, come with me. Come, let us go and repent before God. None of us are perfect. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We were all born into sin. We have a sinful nature, and because of that, we have a record of sin, and both of these are going to be condemned by the perfectly just judge unless these two big problems fall upon Christ. If it's judged in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If it's not in Christ, it will be judged in hell forever. So are you without sin? Of course not. None of us are. 1 John 1, 8 says, If you say, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we are without sin, we're liars. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. We all need a Savior to save us from God's judgment against our sin, which is eternal separation from God, walking in eternal darkness. That is judgment. Separation from God forever. Walking in darkness forever. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear you. What's he saying? He says, You and I have been separated from God by what? Our sin. Jesus came to carry that sin. Folks, do you know that the Bible is the only religious writing that speaks with absolute clarity and authority as to where man comes from. It's the only religious writing that speaks with absolute clarity and authority as to why man exists. Purpose. Origin. Purpose. The Bible is the only religious writings that speaks with absolute clarity and authority as to what man's single greatest problem is. Sin. Sin. The Bible is the only religious writing that speaks with absolute clarity and total authority as to how God solves man's greatest problem of sin, which is Christ on the cross. 
And so he's zoning in on the, on the gospel. Remember, I started off by saying to you that the gospel, broadly speaking, is the whole entire scriptures from cover to cover. But more specifically so, it is God's plan to save man from his single greatest problem, which is sin. Because sin leads to death and separation from God himself. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is what? Death. Every single sin brings death upon the one who sinned. God cannot wink at even the smallest sin. We're all in the same boat. We all need the same solution to our problem, which is sin. And everybody's sin is just wrapped in different packages. But it's sin is sin. And every one sin, no matter how small or insignificant it seems, sends that person to hell forever if, it's, if he's not in Christ. So the question to many will be, well, how do I make right with God? In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 6, really outlines the gospel for us right here. Are you all still with me? All right. Say, I'm with you, Jacques. Okay. Oh, you guys say my name so clearly. You should come with me to Starbucks. <laughs> I'm like, yak! I kid you not. Yak! <laughs> the other day, Joaquis! Joaquis! I'm like, I have no idea how they get there. There's another one, a Jaquez! Jaquez! <laughs> so, then you should see how they spell it. That's hilarious. The question to many will be, well, how do I make right with God? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 6 gives us the gospel. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. Most important thing of all is giving to you what I received. I didn't come up with this, Paul says. I'm giving to you what I received. And here it is. Are you ready? The Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. Not according to me, according to scriptures. Christ died for our sins. He didn't die so you can become wealthy. He died for your sins. Stop it. That's not the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. Verse 4. That he was buried and that he was raised the third day according to scriptures. Not according to me, according to scriptures. The Old Testament, before Jesus even was born, the Old Testament preaches that Jesus would be raised from the dead. What do you think is the typology of Jonah? Three days in the, we on the, in the, in the belly of a whale. Because that is the picture of Jesus, three days in the belly of the earth. What's the belly of the earth? Not hell, no, the grave. He was in the earth, in the sand, in the ground. Cave. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to Scriptures, verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and after that appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Watch this. Most of those 500 are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Most of the 500 that saw Jesus at one time after the resurrection were still alive when Paul wrote this. So in other words, what he wrote couldn't have been a lie because there were too many witnesses that validated what he said. He couldn't have lied about that. <laughs> Here are the 500 people. Most of them still alive. 
who saw him. Now that could still stand in court today as truth. So here Paul says to them, I received the gospel, and here it is that Christ died for your sin, the atonement, that he was buried and that he was raised, which is the validation of what happened on the cross. And we have many witnesses, many witnesses to verify this. So let's outline God's good news, all this good announcement to humanity. The gospel is understood by spiritual significance connected to four different historical events. Watch this. I wanted to outline it this way so that you will never again forget the gospel and that you'll never again have a problem sharing the gospel. It's important that you know how to share the gospel because if you can share it, it means you know it. And if you can share it, it means somebody else can be saved. God can use you. So I want to outline it so clearly that you will never forget it again. There are four events that are very clear in your mind already. And there are spiritual significance that's connected to each one of these four events. And these spiritual significance connected to these four events is the gospel. The first is what we call, in theological terms, the incarnation. What is the incarnation? That is when God, the divine, the uncreated creator who stands outside of creation, decided to enter his own creation as a baby, as a human. The incarnation. <laughs> no, it's true. He goes, oh no, I've heard this before. <laughs> There's a significance regarding the incarnation. There was a second event that took place, and that is the atonement. Where did that take place? On the cross, the crucifixion. There's a spiritual significance there that we need to understand because that's the second part of the gospel. There's a third event that took place. What are we celebrating today? The resurrection. There's a spiritual significance connected to that event, a historical event. There's a fourth event, and that is His ascension. And there's a spiritual significance connected to His ascension, which is part of the gospel for you and me. So first, the incarnation, what happened there? The king is born. The king has come. That means... The kingdom has arrived. When does the kingdom arrive? When the king shows up. When he starts ruling. And peace is promised. The king has come to bring peace. Now, that's not peace between Russia and Ukraine. That's be peace between you and your creator, almighty God. You were at enmity with God. His wrath was abiding upon you and you saw him as your enemy. But Jesus came to reconcile you and make peace between you and God. The end game of the gospel. They actually preached that. So I'm going to use these four points. I'm going to show you that the apostles preached these four points when they preached the gospel. All right? So you we see in Acts chapter 28, verse 30 through 31. Now, Paul stayed two full years in his own rented lodging and welcomed all who came in. Verse 31, preaching the kingdom of God. What was Paul doing for two full years preaching? What was he preaching? The kingdom of God is here. 
God came as a young child dependent upon those who will be dependent upon Him. And He established His kingdom. King Jesus has arrived. And here Paul is preaching the kingdom of God. Teaching them things about the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and un, uh, unhindered. Number two. The spiritual significance connected to the atonement, the cross. So let me just make sure you understand this. What is the spiritual, uh, spiritual significance connected to Christmas, the birth of Christ? Is that the king has arrived. The king has been born. The kingdom is here on our doorstep. God's gospel is going to make you a part of that kingdom. This is the spiritual significance connected to the fact that Jesus, God, became man. He became man to establish His kingdom and make you a subject in His kingdom where He will rule. Number two, that was the first announcement. A king was born. A good announcement. The good news, a king, the king has been born. Number two, the atonement of the cross. This is Jesus hanging on the cross, making atonement at one moment between you and God by shedding His blood. What's the announcement there? The Lamb of God has been slain for you. The Lamb of God has been slain for you. The Lamb of God has been slain for you. A good announcement is being made. Can you believe that is the question. Acts 20 verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has been slain for you. Can you have faith in that? The third historical event is the resurrection. The resurrection, there's a spiritual significance connected to it. Jesus is risen. The good announcement is made. Jesus is risen. Go into all the world. Tell them, a king has been born. The king has, is born. This king, Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, was slain for your sins. The Lamb of God has come to take away your sins. Third announcement. Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. The King has risen from the dead. He conquered your final enemy, death. Wow! If He conquered my final enemy, death, then he, His promises that He will raise me from the dead suddenly is validated. If He can rise from the dead... He knows what He's doing. And His promise to me is valid. Wow! Faith can just rise in your heart, can Right? Let's see them preaching the resurrection in Acts 4, verse 1 and 2. It says, And they were speaking to the people. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people, proclaiming in, Je in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were proclaiming what? In Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. You will rise from the dead if you're in Christ. The resurrection of the dead is here. 
Jesus rose, and all those in Christ will rise with Him. Here is the good announcement being made. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? And as those announcements are going out, the fact that the King has been born, the Lamb of God has been slain for your sins, this Lamb, Jesus, rose from the dead. People heard that, those announcements and they started coming alive. Why? Because they started having faith in those proclamations. They started having faith in the good news, in those announcements. Here's another in Romans 10 verse 9, proclaiming the resurrection. Romans 10 verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that what? God raised Him from the dead. <laughs> God raised Him from... Can you believe that announcement? Jesus has risen. Can you believe that announcement? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, the resurrection, believe in your heart the resurrection, you'll be saved. Now, I happen to believe that without you first being born of God, you couldn't see the kingdom. But when God births you, you can see the kingdom. And when He births you, He births you as a new creation, a new creature, a new creation with a brand new heart of flesh that believes. Therefore, when that announcement goes out, the hearts that do believe are the ones that have been born again. Here's the fourth announcement, the ascension. <laughs> The ascension, what's the spiritual significance connected to it? That our high priest now has ascended and is now seated on the right hand of the Father, doing what? Making intercession for you. You now have a high priest in heaven standing before the just judge of the universe, the judge of all eternity, showing the price that was paid to justify you. To make you right. Jesus stands before while well, he's seated on the right hand of God with the evidence, the evidence of your justification, the evidence that you've been forgiven, the evidence that there are no more claims made on you. Your accuser, the devil, comes back and forth, comes back and forth, comes back and forth, accuses you of what you just did yesterday, and Jesus said, Forgiven. Here's the evidence. Price has been paid in full. The ascension has a spiritual significance that you now have an advocate in heaven defending you. And it's not just a regular old kind of like your uncle advocate who you're paying half price to, to defend you. No, it's Jesus Christ himself defending you in heaven. So this announcement goes out. He has ascended. Your high priest is representing you, and he's perfect. He represents you perfectly. That means his righteousness is what God sees when he looks at you. That means his obedience, watch this, <laughs> is what God sees when he looks at you. That's what I love about the doctrine of double imputation. The doctrine of double imputation, what the Bible teaches is that when Jesus died upon a cross for you, 
your sins was placed into His account and His righteousness to yours. He took on your sin and you took on His righteousness. But what happens in that double imputation is also not just His righteousness, but also His obedience. God looks at you and He sees Christ's perfect obedience. Why is this true for you? Because Jesus has ascended. Can you believe that? Can you believe that announcement made by Scripture? This is how we receive the good announcement. This is how we receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We put our faith in every one of those announcements made. Can you believe the announcement that the king was born in Bethlehem in a stable? Can you believe that? Do you have a heart that believes that? The announcement made that the Messiah has been crucified, atonement has been made, the Lamb of God has been slain for you. Can you believe that? This is the gospel. That same Lamb, Jesus Christ, was risen from the dead. He has conquered sin and death. Can you believe that? This Jesus that rose from the dead has ascended into heaven and is now your high priest before God the Father, representing you, defending you as your advocate. Can you believe that? If you can believe that, you are believing the gospel. You are believing the gospel. And a result of that would be fruits, sanctification. A result of you seeing all of that which God has done for you, how could you in good conscience live outside of repentance. The apostles preached repentance before God and faith in Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance before God and faith in Jesus Christ. I have faith in Jesus Christ, but it's proven by the fact that I walk through life repenting, turning to God, turning to God, turning to God, instead of being bent towards sin. I'm going to close with this. The goal of the gospel is not your justification, is not your forgiveness, is not so that you won't go to hell. The goal of the gospel, all those are true, but those are means unto an end. The end of the gospel is you walking in the presence of God, fellowshipping with God, speaking to Him, and let Him speak to you. Not by hearing voices, but by opening up His Word and let His Word speak to you and speak to you. How do I speak to God? I pray. So my question is, has the end of the gospel become a reality to you? How's your prayer life? Do you fellowship with God through prayer? That's you speaking to God, but how does God speak to you? Through the Word, His Word. My question is, the end of the gospel, is it true for you? Is the Word speaking to you on a daily basis? Do you fellowship with God in this way? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the good announcement. The king has arrived. The kingdom is here. The perfect lamb of God has been slain for my sins. My king Jesus, the perfect lamb of God has, been, has risen from the dead. He's conquered death. 
I have hope for life eternal. Jesus has ascended. He is now my advocate before God, before the judge of all the ages. Thank you, God, for your goodness. I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. Your gospel, Jesus, is God's power to save me. Your gospel is God's power to save everyone here. Today we thank you. We thank you for your plan of salvation. We couldn't have done it. We couldn't have, been, we couldn't have saved ourselves. We were hopeless and helpless. But today we put our faith in you. Because with what is impossible with man is possible with you. Amen. Amen. Did you get something out of the word this morning? Amen.